Hey folks, welcome back to the Be A Better Ally podcast. My name is Trisha Friedman. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. Today is going to wrap up our three-part series with Dr. Emily Garside. So if you have missed the last two episodes, you might want to hit pause and go back to those first two episodes. We had listeners like yourself reach out um, to tell me that you were really interested in learning more about guests who would work well in terms of partnering with your school to be a special guest speaker in the lead up for Pride 2024. So Dr. Emily Garside has a whole range of research and books that I think are really great in terms of working not only with the students in your community, but with your educator peers, as well as with the parent and caretaker community. Now, if you or any of those subsets of your community are fans of Doctor Who, this episode is gonna drive home, again, how Dr. Emily Garside is perfectly positioned to be talking about queer representation and how important it is. Before I tell you a little bit more about this episode, I do want to remind folks um, that I do offer workshop series on media literacy as it applies to inclusion. It's an area that's been important to me for a long time, and I've been leading workshops on that for a long time, too. My calendar for this academic year is almost completely filled up, but if you would like to talk about a potential workshop for next academic year, this is a great time for us to talk. So my email address is over there in the show notes. Listeners of the show always get a special discount for their community, so we can talk more about that, too. All right, today's episode, Dr. Emily Garside, as I mentioned, is back. Garside is an esteemed author, and Garside's work on Russell T. Davies really had me so much more clearly understand the profound impact that Russell T. Davies has had on queer representation in the media. We are going to dig into the layers of influence that the characters and narratives from Russell T. Davies have had But we go a little bit further than that, and we also dig into fandom communities. This is something that's, I think, great to be talking to students about as well. Our dialogue is really, again, behind, beyond analysis, beyond fandom, beyond representation. It is, I think, a call to keep the conversation about queer representation alive and thriving and understanding also how we can be advocates for the kind of media that we need to see in the world. So without further ado, here is once more, Dr. Emily Garza. Dr. Garside, you've done maybe what's maybe the biggest deep dive into the work of Russell T. Davis. I don't know if anybody has gone deeper than you have. Uh, We're here to talk today about your book, Gay Aliens and Queer Folk. I'm wondering if you can just take us back to the origin of this book uh, and walk us through what inspired you to do so much research into the work of Russell T. Davies. Sure. Um, First of all, like he feels like a writer who's just always been part of my life. You know, I remember when Queer as Folk came out in the UK in like 99, 2000, um, and it being like a huge cultural thing. I was like maybe a little bit too young to have watched it live, but I remember that happening. And then he relaunched Doctor Who in like 2005. 
and was this huge cultural phenomenon. And I, I'm from Cardiff, um, which is where Doctor Who was filmed in that reboot and is still filmed today. He's from Swansea, which is um, just an hour down the road as well. So he's very locally part of my life. Um, I also used to see him a lot while I walked my dog, um, which was just an awkward kind of, you know, smiling and waving in a very British way during those times. But he kind of feels like he's very much both literally and figuratively been in my life. Um, and this book actually interestingly came about after my first book on Schitt's Creek. So I wrote a short book on Schitt's Creek in 2021 and uh, an editor of a local um, book publisher got in touch and was like, really liked what I'd done with sort of talking about queerness in that show and like the cultural sort of TV stuff that we've talked about in the last two episodes um, and just sort of said, oh, we're setting up a, a new press essentially and we're taking pitches if you ever have anything. And we got to talking and one of the ones that I pitched was kind of always wanted to write about Russell T Davis. Like, has anyone done that? Should we do that? And they were just really enthusiastic about it, which is great and kind of kind of refined it as you do as to like, oh, what angle should we take? You know, all of this. Um, and then the fun plot twist on this came that we'd spent about like six months working on this as these things do. I was waiting on a contract and it was all ready and I got the contract and within half an hour, it came out that he was going back to Doctor Who and working on Doctor Who again that very same day, which was also the most chaotic half an hour of emails between me and the publisher going, do we have to change anything? Like, do we have to add anything? Like, what are we going to do? Um, but it was all fine. And then it the book came out a month and a bit before the first Doctor Who special sort of that he was back on board for. So it looks like I had some incredible mastermind plan going on for this book, but I really didn't. I sort of just was kind of mildly wondering, oh, could I write about this guy who's like always been in my like sort of periphery as, you know, a leading queer writer and kind of, he's very inescapable in the UK, particularly in terms of his sort of impact on representations in the media and um, as a force for good as well, I would sort of add to that as well in terms of representation. Um, and added into that mix, my sort of original focus and research was on representations of the AIDS pandemic through culture, media, theatre. And it, again, in 2021, his um, drama series, It's a Sin, had come out, which was 10 years or more in the making from his part about the impact of AIDS, but from a British perspective, which is something that's not been done very often. It's certainly not been done in a long form drama like that before. So again, it just felt like a lot of stars aligning of like, okay, Russell's written that now. It feels like the time that maybe I should also write about him. Um, and then when I got into it, I realized, oh my gosh, this man has made so many sort of dramas of great significance. It's really impossible to condense them into one book. So we had to make some edits and some cuts. And I did a few things more thematically and looked at how he approached things from, you know, politics to Welsh identity to sex on screen, all of these things. And it just became a really fascinating look at how you know, one writer really has touched on such an array of representation, of stories, of just interesting things in his career. Um, and also, again, like much of my other work that I do, how that then sort of impacts the world around it and how the world is impacting his work and vice versa and how we can maybe learn from that. And in particular, looking at the arc of someone's career over, what, 30 something years actually kind of going, oh, we can see also how 
maybe one queer writer is both impacting the world around us but also being impacted by it and changing his work as he goes which has been I think an added joy of it and seeing how someone's work has evolved over the years as well. Yeah and you know talking about representation you know I, I often will will point educators to the work that GLAD is doing because they always have their their thumb on the pulse of where we're at with TV and film and when it comes to LGBTQ plus representation they do this big annual report at looking at where things have improved, where they've declined. Um, and again, sometimes folks will say, you know, Trisha, I'm very skeptical of that. People just think of TV and film as, you know, a mode of entertainment, mindlessness, that's all. Does it really matter if we've got quality representation in the media? Um, how has your research maybe clarified your answer to that, that question or that skepticism? I think it's such an important sort of thing to have good representation, but also actually people like Glad cataloging it and even, you know, in the tiny way that people like me do in terms of the more niche stuff, you know, that I'm doing is kind of saying, no, this exists and it's important because there's, a, you know, a, a saying that's like, you can't be what you can't see. And it's that idea that, you know, for many people I know, particularly my, British guys my age, Queer as Folk was the first time they saw a gay man on TV and went, oh, that, that's a guy like me. Oh my God, that's like amazing. And it seems like such a small thing when that's something you take for granted as like, if you're a heterosexual person in, you know, a cisgender heterosexual person in a traditional sort of relationship, you see yourself every single day. Whenever you turn on the TV, whatever book you pick up, it's very easy to. Whereas particularly for those of us who grew up in sort of the 90s and even before that, it was very rare to see a representation of yourself. And it's still less common to see a representation of yourself if you're from any minority group. But again, in terms of sexuality in the 90s, they were very limited and very negative. So again, it's that thing of any representation that offered a positive, a step forward, allow people to feel less alone, allows people to sort of understand themselves because that equally is a really significant thing of like, yes, we can all google things but actually it's seeing real stories and human narratives that allow us to really understand it because you know we get i think was it on a heart stop it was one of the shows where like a young person was googling like quizzes about like am i gay am i bisexual that kind of thing and you can do 101 like buzzfeed quizzes to tell you but actually seeing that character on the tv show go through a similar thing to what you might have gone through or done yourself actually makes you understand that set of emotions you know and I talk about it quite often um, in sort of my personal activism in that I realized that I was asexual in my late 30s and that is simply because I had never seen any representation of asexual people anywhere didn't really know anything about it other than a vague notion of like what the label meant and kind of had never gone any deeper and you know for me seeing that representation be it in books in tv and film would have made that process so much easier so much quicker and arrived at it so much earlier and you know if i could have avoided years of thinking there was something wrong with me or questioning my life choices and all of these things just for the sake of there being a television character somewhere it seems like such a small ask and that actually these pieces of representation also 
don't hurt anybody else because they're not taking away from the rest of the stories out there. There are a million and one options for other stories out there that people could watch that won't take away from it. Or if the character who happens to be, for example, a gay man is in something like a detective show, um, it's not taking away from the fact that they're a good detective and actually the main narrative is a detective show. Um, I point quite often to shows like either Grey's Anatomy or the 911 franchise and stuff like that where they do have a lot of queer characters, minority representation, and most episodes that's not the story. Like one a series maybe might focus on their relationships or their identity. Most of the time they're just being a doctor, a firefighter, a police officer, whatever it is, who happens to be LGBTQ. And that's not taking anything from the actual reason anyone's watching the show. They're watching it for like the adventure of like what's going to happen this week. But actually seeing the firefighter, the policeman, the doctor who identifies as whatever label it might be is so significant to somebody who also identifies as that or might discover that they do because they'll go, oh, they're just doing a normal thing on that show. They're a normal character, but they're also this and they have a girlfriend, a boyfriend, they're trans, whatever it might be. And it takes nothing from the rest of the narrative about the building blowing up or Ebola virus or whatever mad thing it is that week that that show is doing. And I think that's where people also get it slightly wrong in some respects. They think that everything has to be like the episode of the week, moralistic, like we're going to teach people about being LGBTQ. But actually, usually it's just about seeing people on screen who represent part of a community in the same way that we should also be doing, you know, with representations of race and disability and everything else, just to make people feel seen by the media that they consume, which is really important. Yeah, and I, I think it is sort of like, to what extent can the arts help us understand and appreciate the variability of humanity, um, an activity that I've found to be really useful with students is to have them do an investigation into look at kind of some of the big media, um, you know, conglomerates, mm -hmm. who's running them, look at any of the big, you know, gigantic awards that are very well known, who gets to make the decisions in terms of who gets Oscar for best picture, who's been making that decision for a long time, can often be a really eye-opening experience. If it's a school that uses textbooks, well, who's behind, you know, who are the publishers of those textbooks? Um, Emily, you know, I think taking on Russell T. Davies and writing about Doctor Who, when I think about fandom, I think about Doctor Who often. I think it's got a gigantic fan base. Um, and again, with Doctor Who trying to evolve, there's been gigantic backlash. You know, I, I think, um, you know, talking about identity and who can be a fan of what. And, um, you know, that's an interesting conversation to have. What relationship do you, the researcher slash author, have with the fandom around the shows that that um, that you're writing about when you're talking about Russell T. Davies? And, and how has this book maybe reshaped that dynamic or that relationship that you have with uh with fans of Davy's work? It's a really interesting one. I will say at least um, so far, I'll probably unleash it now. I've largely not had to come into contact with the, shall we say, those more negative areas of the fandom, which like maybe they're just too busy shouting at somebody else, probably Russell um, at the minute, but they've like, they've not found me yet, which is great. Um, for me, for the Doctor Who one, it was interesting because I think I was deep in it in like the last reboot, the last Russell T. Davis reboot, like I was deep in Doctor Who fandom, like it was very much my main sort of nerdish focus. 
and then it kind of as these things tend to do like ebbed away a little bit like I never stopped being a Doctor Who fan but I wasn't as deep in it so I kind of I'd mentally removed myself from that space a little bit which I think is probably a healthy thing before I dove into this book. So for a large part because for this I was looking at his first sort of tenure as showrunner it was quite a nostalgic thing and it felt quite distant because it was the older fandom I was looking at but equally being very mindful that he was coming back and all of these changes were happening you know he's cast a queer man as the doctor um he's cast a black queer man as the doctor as well we should add he's cast you know a trans actress or, or, or well two trans actresses actually already in the show all of the backlash you know around that and being very conscious that yes people were angry but also kind of being conscious that largely it's not the real fans who are actually that angry it's the you know, tabloid reading, keyboard warrior shouting people on the internet whose opinions, you know, are very loud, but luckily don't count for much even in the fandom. And then within the fandom, like, there's an old guard, there's a certain, you know, demographic or certain hardcore sort of group who seem to keep to their own corner of the internet, I must, I must say, currently. Um, and are always going to be angry about something anyway. Um, I kind of liken them as well to like sports fans. Like, you know how whenever you've got a sports team, no matter what decision that team makes, there is a group who will be angry whatever way that decision goes. Like that's that group of people. And then there's kind of, you know, the sort of slightly trying to be moral but not really succeeding majority or minority kind of going oh, won't someone think of the children? Whereas actually most of the sensible, you know, sort of parents, educators, everyone else uh, kind of going, yeah, we are thinking of the children and showing them a great diverse TV show. So let's do that. So that's been largely okay in terms of dealing with that. But I think equally, I've had a sort of push and pull of feeling really sort of back in it and loving the work that Russell does and loving sort of being inspired again and also feeling the positivity that a lot of his work inspires because as much as he writes some very dark stuff sometimes actually I feel like he's thought of really positively by the queer community and kind of has had such a good impact particularly in sort of British television that it feels like a nice thing to be part of again and sort of to be sort of the main real sort of positive takeaway of being around the fandoms for me has been hearing so many stories of people who were either very young when Doctor Who came out or you know a teenager when Queer as Folk came out or even some of the more obscure TV shows and going oh my god this thing shaped my life oh my god I love this show oh it was the first time I saw you know this kind of person in a show or it was the first positive representation of like gay people that I saw on TV and that was really fun um, or this person was the first person who really felt like me on TV and that's been the overwhelming conversation I've had with fans about Russell T Davis and that feels like such a rare thing but also such a lovely thing to be able to have is that kind of conversation about how positively impacted people's lives have been by not just one TV show because it's quite often really obscure bits and pieces that people would be like, I remember this and it was incredible. And even going back to when he wrote for kids TV in the 90s. And I think that feels like a nice thing to have been sucked back into in its own way, in a very Doctor Who-esque way there as well. Mm. Well, I'm thinking too, you know, when we are seeing representation that we're thinking, we want more of this. Um, 
there's work that we can do. There's advocacy work that we can do. You know, in part by writing the books that you have, you're doing that work. Um, I have a lot of authors, illustrators on this podcast, and I often ask them, you know, what are useful ways that we can help amplify your work? You know, everything from make sure your local library has that book um, to also thinking about rating it in all the places that it can be rated. And when it comes to TV and film, uh, there's a resource actually I'll leave in the show notes about how how influential ratings on um, communities like IMDb and, and Rotten Tomatoes can be. But this piece from Wired also talks about how those ratings are heavily skewed because there's a gigantic gender imbalance. Um, and so I think it's also interesting to talk to young folks about uh, what might it be, what might it mean for us to review works that we would like to see more of? And I'm wondering if you have thoughts on the the meaning in doing that. Is it purposeful? Do you head over to IMDb or Rotten Tomatoes? Um, are there other spaces where you think for shows that are pushing the needle, what can viewers do uh, to help and make sure that that's not a trajectory that starts going in reverse because there's an awful lot of folks that who are out here fighting against LGBTQ representation. So are you on Rotten Tomatoes? Or are you on IMDb? Or, or why not? Or where are some some places that maybe we should be? I'm not actually. And I yeah, I didn't know that about how influential it is because it's really I think that is important. And something I've thought of a lot lately because we've had a whole uh, array of shows cancelled in recent months that have LGBTQ characters at their heart. So, you know, from Our Flag Means Death to uh, A League of Their Own and plenty of others that have sort of quite substantial representation in them that even if they aren't queer shows. And it definitely feels like they're an easy target at the minute of not getting the ratings. And, you know, I think if those are sort of statistically sort of tangible places that we can leave reviews i think similar to when you leave a goodreads or an amazon or whatever review it can't hurt because especially if it only takes you a few minutes of your day it's worth doing i think also just talking about it in whatever sort of platforms you use whether that's social media or whether it's you know people who do blogging reviews that kind of thing on other platforms i think all of that does collectively contribute to the conversation when people are like looking at what's out there. And I think that's definitely sort of really important. And the other, like it sounds really silly, but actually watching the things, like I know the way that ratings are collated are an increasingly complicated thing, but obviously, you know, if you're hearing about these cool queer shows or these cool shows that have lots of different representation in them, making sure that you engage with them and watch them and kind of do all of that kind of stuff feels like a really significant thing to do. Um, I think as well, a lot of times, you know, creators are quite active in different sort of social media spaces as well. And I think if that's your thing, engaging with them on there is really great in a positive way. Obviously, like nobody needs you sliding into their DMs and telling you that you hated X episode. But I think, actually that does tend to have a lot of weight in sort of contemporary sort of society as well and also it's usually quite a nice thing you know if it's sort of more niche show creators are generally quite responsive but i think sort of you know using your own sort of power in terms of telling people about these works as well shouldn't be underestimated because we're all more likely to watch a show if someone whose opinion we trust or who shares our taste recommends it and i think that 
most of the time is the way to keep the things going as well is to just like keep telling people oh this thing's really cool i think you'll like it oh it has x character which maybe i think you'll like you know find interesting all of that kind of thing and i think that is the best way to sort of keep these conversations going for shows and to hopefully keep them going in what's often quite difficult circumstances yeah and i, I that word of that word of mouth piece i i think is uh, again it's it's underestimated but when i think about my own viewing or media yeah. diet habits it, they're strongly influenced by people who i i trust and i know you know what are, what are they watching and how can we make that a shared experience mm -hmm. Um, you know, on that note, I often recommend a, a GSA activity that I've seen be really powerful in different school communities is when that GSA puts together a recommended viewing, reading, listening, playing list um, for the educators in their community. And sometimes, you know, I'll say like partner it with like a few questions, right? Like a few guided d discussion questions to have. Having had you on the show now three weeks in a row, multiple opportunities for schools to consider ways to invite you in as a guest um, for Pride Month or really any month. Emily, you're one of the, I think, most experienced speakers I can imagine when it comes to talking about the history and the current state of queer representation in the media. I'm wondering if you can say more about why that conversation is important not just Pride Month, but why that conversation, again, is a critical one for us to keep coming back to and how, you know, we talked about, I think, in our first episode about story can be a vehicle for learning, right? I think it can open up folks to a conversation where they might not necessarily have felt ready before. So could you say a little bit more for a listener who's curious about what might it mean to invite Dr. Garcida in to talk about queer representation in the media? Um, you know, if they're just catching this episode and they're thinking, oh, I'm not a huge Doctor Who fan. I'm sorry to say that in your presence. That's maybe like just hugely offensive. Um, what are some other some other examples of media that uh, you'd love time to discuss in that kind of setting? For sure. I think the great sort of overarching conversation I tend to have in these situations is one that I like to call know your history which is know your cultural history basically um, and I you know talked about it in our other conversations but the idea that I've always approached knowing history through the cultural representations that sort of define us and I think I love to talk about sort of going back as far as like ancient myths and legends and indigenous stories and things like that and go actually all of this diversity has always been here we just stopped talking about it we did it in different ways it's also super important to you know go back to um, our indigenous people's roots and sort of acknowledge that you know their part in the stories that we tell and everything like that but equally in sort of you know western europe where i am the way that we are raised sort of the the truth as it were of like greek myths and legends like i don't advise like googling some of this without some like safe searches on because it can get yep. interesting but there are some like really the stories we think we know actually aren't the stories that we know and i find that fascinating and i love to unpick that particularly because if you ask people you know about gods and goddesses and what they think they know of those legends or like king arthur or anything they're like oh it's this and you're like well actually let me offer you something else and that's a really good vehicle for sort of unpicking what we think we know about history and society then the other sort of elements I love to talk about are what I call hidden histories, which is our, like our famous authors who we all know Oscar Wilde by now, like great. We know he was, you know, a gay man who was punished for his crimes. But 
people don't know about people like E.M. Forster, who literally hid his stories in a drawer and made his friends promise to wait till after he died to publish them because they revealed the truth of himself. Or the poets from World War One and Two who were writing to other men but kept it secret and nobody talked about that. There's so many, you know, I was taught the colour purple in high school. We barely mentioned the queer, it's not even subtext, it's text in that novel, but we barely mentioned Alice Walker's sort of look at that in Black American life. And there are so many other authors like that that I love to sort of explore and give voice back to. But then also in sort of contemporary society, you know, a lot of our most powerful storytellers are now on TV and film. That's where like our popularised sort of strong storytelling has gone to. And actually, be it on stage in a musical or be it on our TV screens, you know, these are where we find stories that speak to our contemporary experience. And also both stage and screen allow us to tell stories in much more real time in keeping with what's going on in our world today. We see it all the time with like political sort of dramas and things, but also people's lived experience. So actually, for people who think they don't know or have connection to perhaps the LGBTQ community, by sharing with them stories from media, whether it's something like Heartstopper with like young, you know, teenagers set in a UK school, or be it something like, you know, a version of Doctor Who, which is sci-fi and in a different world going, actually, there are ways we can understand the experiences that a lot of people are going through, through the stories that are on screen. And these are people who have also lived these stories quite often telling them to you. So it might help to understand a community that you might not be part of, but you might be really keen to empower your own understanding around. And I think those are really interesting ways into looking at, you know, how we might use stories from our world to then tell our own stories and empower the people we work with to do the same. That sounds fantastic. Listeners, if that does not entice you, I don't know what will. So please do head over to the show notes. You'll be able to learn more about Dr. Garside's work, ways to reach out and connect. Um, and again, to I, I just think it's always wonderful to bring guests into our school communities and to push and nudge our thinking, as you said so eloquently, and to question, what is it that we think we know? Thank you so much for giving up so much of your time and expertise to the show. And we look forward to um, the next book. You've written several already, and I'm sure um, you're sort of just, just getting started. So thank you again so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.